Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Last year, when pandemic lockdowns began, people fled urban areas or worked from home, and a surprising thing happened. The air in many cities became cleaner than it had been in decades, and birds and other wildlife flourished, which brings up the question, what would happen if human activity in these areas was halted permanently? Well, investigative journalist Cal Flynn looks into that question in her timely new book, Islands of Abandonment, Nature Rebounding in the Post-Human Landscape, in which she visits sites around the world that have been depopulated due to war, disease, natural or man-made disaster, or economic decline, and reports on how nature has rebounded, often in unusual ways. It's published by Viking and brings Cal Flynn to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. I assume you began working on this book long before the COVID pandemic began. Uh, did that uh, put a crimp on your plans? Well, I was very lucky, actually, in as much as I had finished all of my travel by the time um, the lockdowns came into place, because I know that that's caused a lot of problems for, for writers and, and indeed a lot of different people. Um, but um, what I hadn't anticipated, I suppose, when I came up with the idea for the book was that it would become timely in this way that so, so many of us would be looking at sort of empty streets and, you know, um, I suppose animals out and about in unexpected places, the way that we suddenly became. The places you write about in this book range from Europe to Africa, the former Soviet Union to the United States, and New Jersey, New York. Some of them are rather obscure, like an abandoned botanical garden in Tanzania. Are all of those places the subject of scientific studies? Yes, I mean, uh, these places are a real mix. I suppose, uh, I talk about the Chernobyl exclusion zone as being the poster child for this. And that was the first place that I went to because I think it is a clear example of, of the phenomenon that I'm looking at, which is uh, areas where people have been um, excluded or they've chosen to abandon the area for a long period of time, so something like decades. But I also wanted to look at um, less well-known places. And as you say, the Amani Botanical Gardens in Tanzania is one example. But it was important to me that there had been some kind of historical um, um, or ecological study of each of the places so that we had some sense of what had happened to them in the intervening years, like what happens when nature is allowed to, to reclaim its place on the earth. So on the whole, when humans leave, do, do most of these uh, places revert to the kind of flora and fauna that were there before people inhabited them or did completely different types of plants and animals move in? Yeah, it, it, it really depends on what the impact of humans has been. So uh, in some places, you see very similar ecosystems to what was there before. But in places that have been very badly impacted, for example, by war or by industry, um, you can find that the landscape will never quite be the same. That's not to say that it can't turn out to be something also valuable and also interesting and, and biodiverse. But um, for example, in, in a place that I went to in Verdun in France, which is where they burnt chemical weapons during the first, after the First World War, um, that area of land became very polluted with heavy metals. And so we see that the species that are able to thrive there after that had happened are very different. So we see plants 
that are able to, to ignore the heavy metals in the soil for one reason or another, or they're able to accumulate the heavy metals, you get special kind of plants that actually quite like these conditions. So you might see that the ecosystems that pop up are really strange and unusual. And that was something that I became really fascinated by, this idea that you know one creature's poison might be another creature's mana, and that um, nature is very much a sort of collective term and, and there's all sorts of different creatures that, that like different different things. And so, yes, in answer to your question, they, they might be very different to what was there before, but I think um, what I'm hoping in this book is to sort of reach out to people and, and say, you've got to look afresh at these really um, badly impacted landscapes and, and see the beauty that they might come to, come to you know, embody. Um, rather than assuming that they are always worthless and, and we should look at them and try and see them through through clear eyes. Well, Earth has gone through a number of major changes over its history, like the Ice Age and uh, a, a number of mass extinctions. But um, are the, the things that you're writing about here similar in any ways, on, on, only on a much smaller scale? Are we talking about something total, totally different because, uh, because of humans? Yes, well, I think um, it is on a different scale, at least in terms of, you know, how fast the changes have been happening, um, but they are the same processes at work. So I look at uh, the basics of succession, which if you studied biology at school, you might have come across um, the sort of basic model of this, which is how bare land or sometimes bare rock might come to be recolonized by by plants and animals. So in nature, you might find this on um, lava flow or you might find volcanic islands that pop up from under the waves and they're completely bare and sterile often. Um, but over time, there's a process called seed rain, which is rather wonderful. It's all these seeds floating up there on the atmosphere and they drift down and land on the earth and the ones that suit that land might pop up and start growing or you might have birds dropping seeds on them and through this sort of random process you start to see how species can can repopulate an area of bare ground and it's a very similar process that you might see in say an abandoned car park or a former building site or anything like this you know even after you know a terrible war um, you find um, bare ground very churned up but things like poppies for example they're a really famous example of things that pop up very quickly on that bare ground and they tend to be the harbingers of more life and that happens in stages you know working through these wonderful wildflowers through grasses shrubs and depending on what the climate is you might later find a very dense forest and what had until a few decades before been very bare rocky or damaged ground it's so i don't know i think it's kind of beautiful well in some cases obviously it returns to kind of what it was before. In other cases, it becomes something totally different because of what's happened. Yes, yeah, that's right, that's right. So um, it's, a, it's a sort of flexibility in nature, or it's, it's these random forces coming into play and over time, um, an ecosystem tends to develop that is able to cope with these new conditions. How much was this book inspired by abandoned sites in your native Scotland? Because the first P place you write about is Inchkeep, one of a number of small islands in the, the Firth of, of Forth, uh, off the east coast of Scotland. Uh, what is its history? Oh, absolutely. Inchkeep is one of the, well, it's the biggest of the Forth Islands, although there are several. 
and they are um, quite small, um, but very much in view from the capital of Scotland. Um, and they're very densely um, constructed with these sort of concrete abutments and gun emplacements and, and buildings dating from the Second World War. Um, so they were sort of overrun with soldiers at that time because it was considered a last ditch defense of the city. Um, but after the war, it sort of fell into disuse. It, there wasn't an obvious um, use for it defensively outside of um, major war times and it's fallen into dereliction. But um, a really incredible process has come into play in which um, seabirds, um, breeding seabirds, tend to go there now in spring and they set up home on all of these concrete buildings before they were quite sort of low lying, slightly rocky islands and they weren't of particular note to seabirds. But now because they have all of these concrete buildings with ledges and, and mantles and so on, um, they like now to build their nests on them as if they were sort of artificial cliffs which is what they would do otherwise. So they're absolutely packed at this time of year with sort of razor bills and guillemots and all sorts of seagulls, even puffins on some of those islands. And um, in the winter, you see seals will haul up and have their pups on the island. They sort of run amok um, with all these teenage seals all sort of scooching around and, and getting into trouble. So it is kind of a, an amazing example of this process. And it's very much sort of in view from the center of the city. Um, it is quite an amazing thing to see. But it's been used for a wide variety of things over the centuries, a fort, a prison, even a quarantine hospital. And now totally abandoned? What happened? Well, first of all, why did it keep on changing? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose... Uh... It's, it's sort of handy, you know, it's in a tactical location. So you can see why um, the, the monarchs of the time might look out, see this island and think, oh, we'll have a fort here. So initially uh, it was a fort a long time ago um, in sort of fights with the, with the English and the French were there for a while as well. And then in between, as you say, it was a quarantine hospital. It became a school for the prophets. I think that was well before this was sort of in the, in the missionary time. And, um, it's had quite a varied lifestyle, but now I think it's just a little bit too awkward to have people living on it. Um, people have tried, you know, in the last few decades, there was a woman who ran a very small um, a sort of charity for um, abandoned animals. So she had a few over there, but it, it just wasn't very practical. And so it's this slightly, I don't know, look at quite a few of the sites I talk about in my book. It's not so much that they are um, awful places or unvaluable places, but they've just fallen out of use. There's no obvious use for them at the moment. So it's just been left for, for decades at a time. These islands don't get discussed much, but we did a show uh, some months back about one of the islands uh, that has become an independent country. So uh, <laughs> this is a, a rich history. Uh, now, another abandoned site that you write about is West Lothian, on the southern shore of the Firth of Forth. Uh, tell us about, about what happened there. Sure, absolutely. In fact, uh, this was another thing that I'd kind of seen all my life and not really thought through the implications of, but West Lothian was an area of mining or, or, or serious mining of um, shale um, rock 
which was in the 19th century turned into shale oil. It was sort of an early way of developing paraffin and fuel. Um, so there was a huge industry there in the 19th century. And what they did was they dug up all of the shale rock and then they hyper or superheated it to get the oil out of it. And then they were left with um, sort of crumbly bits of gravel, um, sort of orange color. And they just piled that up in heat. So, they're called um, bings? They're called bings, exactly. And they're really amazing landforms. Um, now I almost can't believe that I've been driving past them all my life without thinking about them because they are, some of them are like pyramids and other ones in this, it's called the, the Five Sisters and it's shaped like a massive scallop shell. They're real landmarks on, on the horizon. Um, and they were completely sterile um, at the time that they were created and also rather hazardous. So kids climbing on these things just after they were made were quite often reported sort of burns or every so often, you know, people might fall through a, a collapse in the things. So they were hated for quite a long time. They're also sort of symbols of the industrial history of the area that um, over, well, certainly decades and in some cases more than a century, they have through this process of succession become very interesting in terms of their biodiversity. So a local ecologist described them as island refugia for life. And it's this kind of concept of islands of abandonment that I sort of circle around in the book because some of the examples are literally islands like in Keith, uh, Inch Keith, and then some of them are sort of metaphorical islands that are surrounded perhaps by intensive farmland or by cities and so on. But, what's important is that they serve as a sort of sanctuary for wildlife and that they're not being sort of tended in the way that a garden might be instead allowed to I suppose show the wisdom of an environment in flux. And the wildlife is not affected by the bings which um, I would imagine are, are kind of poisonous? Well the, the bings in this case are sort of um, uh, what's the word? I mean, there's not much to them. They're, they're gravel and they're very free draining. Um, they're just sort of big and empty of nutrients. Um, you might think of them as being, I suppose, a bit like the pumice from uh, uh, a lava flow. Um, so they're very um, inert, I suppose, is where I'm going with that. So these are inert, but in, in other cases in the book, they might actually be sort of polluted examples as well. And there's absolutely no uh, oil production there anymore? No, not at all. So it's it's no longer considered to be an efficient way of producing oil. And it's a very long time, actually, since um, that area was mined. I think the last mine closed in the 60s. And so it's much more of a sort of quiet, quite sleepy agricultural area now. And it just has these souvenirs left over from its heyday as an industrial titan. And people are farming it. It's not totally abandoned. No, that's right. So the the abandoned things in in this particular chapter are the bings themselves, which are sort of very large, hill sized. Um, some of them are are several hundred meters in height. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Cal Flynn. This is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. And the book that we're discussing is Islands of Abandonment: Nature rebounding in the post-human landscape. Uh, it is published by Viking. And let's just stay uh, with the islands near Scotland just a bit longer before we move on to other parts of the world. Uh, you also include uh, Swona, I'd never heard of it, a small uninhabited island off the northernmost tip of the mainland. What's its history? 
Sure. I mean, you're absolutely not alone in never having heard of Swona. Um, I think plenty of people who live very close to it have never heard of Swona because it has been abandoned completely since 1979. And for a very long time, it was just one family who lived there as very small farmers. Um, they had a, a small number of um, cattle, maybe a few chickens, um, but otherwise it was just this family alone on this quite small island, as you say, just off the north coast of Scotland. And um, as they got older, it was a brother and sister who were left there. As they got older and more frail, they decided that it was impossible for them to continue living alone on this island. It's quite um, tricky to, to live like that, you know, especially mm. with dragging boats on and off. And so they moved with family onto a neighboring island. And just as they left, they opened the gate to let their cattle out, assuming that they were going to come back. Um, and those cattle have been grazing loose on this abandoned island ever since. And, and about 10 generations of cattle have now passed. And I was really interested, I suppose, in, in this line between, I suppose, animals left and then when do they become feral and when do they become, I suppose, wild once more? You know, because domesticity is sort of bred into them. Um, cattle have been a domestic breed for about 10,000 years. So when do cattle become wild again? And, and I went across there to, to look at the cattle, but also I suppose to soak up the atmosphere of the island, which is very, um, I suppose, melancholy. It's, it's a sort of beautiful place, um, quite flat and treeless as much of the islands in this part of the world are, um, but it's full of life. I was there a couple of years ago around this time of year. And again, it was full of seabirds, puffins, seals, all sorts and um, I really felt you know to begin with it was a rather <laughs> lovely and cheering experience to be there and then over time I realized that there really wasn't a place for for people anymore on this island it was um, the species that have reclaimed it were not at all happy to see me as a person attempting to sort of move back in I was only there for 24 hours but I got sort of harassed by arctic terns who were very upset to see me and oyster catchers sort of screeching at me for the whole time and what had started as this lovely pastoral scene became something a bit like a gothic horror as I was being chased from pillar to post by all these different animals all all of them trying to defend their own territory so it was a bit of a strange and spooky experience to be alone on this island and to sleep alone in one of the abandoned cottages there with sort of animals moving around in the walls and in the roof spaces. Um, I really felt that this small place once a, a human outpost had had been completely taken over and it was it was difficult to reclaim that space. Would scientists have predicted that these domesticated cattle would survive uh, as as feral cattle as feral cows? I think um, at, when they were first abandoned, um, it was assumed that they would probably die out just over the winter. I mean, they don't get any supplementary feeding, which in this part of the world is quite unusual in winter. I mean, you get these very wild winter storms. Um, the island itself is, as I say, it's treeless. It's, it's grassed over, but the grass is quite short. And um, the cattle get a lot of their nutrients from eating seaweed and they shelter in the old houses. So many of them have got sort of their doors have been bashed in by cows over the years and they will stand in there. One of the most um, ruined houses was sort of thigh deep with, with slurry because they must stand in there all winter to be protected from these wild winds. Um, but it, it can be quite dangerous for them as well. So the owners of the island who are sort of descendants of the, the brother and sister who lived there, have um, they have one 
house that's still sort of habitable. Um, and they've really battened down the hatches in there trying to stop the cattle getting in because um, cattle or seals might go into these buildings and they get trapped and die. <laughs> Um, so that's happened a number of times in that island, and it's really quite a horrifying scene to stumble upon. So um, they have survived somewhat against the odds, and they're of quite a lot of interest to scientists because now people want to study, you know, their behavior. What do they do when they're left totally alone? There's not that many examples of truly feral herds in the world, you know, very small numbers of them. And uh, so it is great to be able to go and, and look at them behaving, I suppose, in a pure cow way if you see what I mean and, and see how they've reconstructed cow culture or cow society on their own on this island. In other chapters you write about war zones like the no man's land in Cyprus between the Greek and Turkish areas. Why was that area created in the first place and what's happened to the people who live there? Sure yes actually this is quite a quite a sad story. Um, the so there was a, an invasion by Turkey um, in the 70s um, after a sort of some political jostling between um, Greece and uh, the Republic of Cyprus. Um, and Turkey sent uh, forces into the north of Cyprus, um, I suppose, under the guise of sort of peacekeeping, but they haven't ever left and they've claimed quite a lot of um, the territory of the island. Um, after some really bitter um, contested fighting, um, the UN moved in and created this um, no man's land that stretches all the way across the island, east to west. Um, and at some places, it's only a few meters wide. In other places, it's a few kilometers wide in the sort of remotest parts. Um, and essentially, it's a sort of no-go zone. It's, it's very tightly policed, um, slightly less so now, but there are obser observation towers um, at very regular intervals all the way along some owned by the UN, some by the Greek, um, well, by the, by the Republic of Cyprus and some by um, North Cyprus or, or sort of Turkish back forces. And um, so they sit there and have been sitting there ever since the 70s, sort of watching this um, no-go zone is respected. Um, a lot of people lost their, their homes um, on both sides, it must be said. Um, so um, Greek Cypriots who were in the north um, were sort of excluded from their homes and moved to the south and, and vice versa. Um, and then there's this long strip of land. In a few um, areas, it has become farmed again under a very strict sort of licensing system, but a lot of it is simply abandoned. And you can see from above, if you look at the, the Google Maps images um, of central Nicosia, you can actually see where this no man's land is because it's very clearly bright green because that's where all of the plants and trees have grown back in along this, in many cases, one street that just sort of winds its way through the city to the north of it, North Cyprus, to the south of the Republic of Cyprus. And it is very much a sort of visual symbol of, of that split that has taken place in Cyprus and, and is very much in a stalemate even today. Um, and then there were just abandoned homes in, in this, in the area, are they rotting? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, very visibly so in a lot of cases. And, and in the east of the island, there's an area which is Turkish occupied um, around Verosha. So it's this um, seaside resort and also a sort of big suburb behind it. And the scale of it is quite enormous. It is a, a sort of um, eerie and slightly frightening place to drive through because it feels like it's been caught in this 
weird time warp because um, everything, all the signposts are, are still standing and there's things in their houses dating from the 70s, although many of them are sort of wrecked because a lot of fighting has taken place there. Sometimes there are sandbags or, or people have sort of built um, abutments behind which they were, were shooting from. So it is sort of caught in this time warp from around the time of the fighting. And it, it, it's a huge area. It really is a, a big suburb. And Barosha itself has got these very large um, high rise buildings that were once very glamorous hotels stayed in by, by the likes of Elizabeth Taylor and so on, so on during its heyday. So it's actually rather um, sad from a, from a social or, or, or human his, history perspective. Um, I was there because I was very interested in the ecological side of it. So more particularly to the west of the island, which is a lot more remote where the um, no man's land cuts through mountains. And there are a number of um, abandoned villages which are now being repopulated by um, mouflon sheep, which are very rare and endemic, and endemic mice, which are very rare as well, and um, rather beautiful, rare flowers, which are popping up in these regions. So these have been protected in a, an otherwise very densely developed island. Um, this is where they found a sort of sanctuary. And so there's a lot of discussion between North and South about you know, if things were to change, how would they protect mm -hmm what has sort of sprung up in the meantime between them in the way that um, it's very analogous, I suppose, to that exclusion zone between the two Koreas. Well, you, you don't write about the Tulsa race massacre of 1921, uh, where there's a lot of talk about it uh, in this country, because uh, uh, this weekend was the centennial, but uh, it's in the middle of a, a major city in Oklahoma, and yet it's never fully recovered. We're talking about 100 years. And uh, this isn't because, well, I guess it was because of a different kind of a war. But it's interesting that uh, sometimes things are just left to to rot. Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, things can be painful or difficult or, you know, you, you find the way that, that human history scores the ground as well and, and takes a very physical form. I think that's very, um, it's, it's, mm. it's, 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 troubling and, and, and sort of deeply moving to, to, to visit places like this. You mentioned Chernobyl in Ukraine, the site of a nuclear reactor meltdown 1986, uh, 25 years ago, uh, 30, what, 35 years ago. How large an area was evacuated? And is it still considered too contaminated for human habitation? So the area was very large. Uh, in uh, I think in American terms, it would be slightly bigger than Rhode Island um, and it is has got a, an equivalent size exclusion zone on the opposite side of the border with Belarus and um, it is now very variable in terms of its contamination so a lot of the areas um, where the, the radiation has decayed are now much lower and, and at sort of normal levels. So there's a city here in Scotland called Aberdeen, which is built mm -hmm. out of granite and granite is slightly radioactive. And so to walk around the streets of Aberdeen is now roughly the same as to walk around much of the exclusion wow. zone in Chernobyl. And um, when I went to visit, it, they said probably I would have experienced more radiation in my body during the flight to U the Ukraine than I would do in the exclusion zone. Um, because funny. really, actually, you do get a lot of radiation on these flights, especially transatlantic flights. You know, they go very high. 
Um, so I found. So that is it remarkable. safe for people to return? Yes and no. So if you're very careful about where you go, you can stay within um, low-level radiation. But the difficulty comes. Called the new Aberdeen. The yes, exactly. Um, the the problem is that there's this sort of uh, dappling of of radiation, and some areas really are very highly radioactive still. So if you go into the zone, you can probably carry around like a Geiger counter with you and it just ticks. You you get used to the, the background ticking of, of just the normal noise, as they call it. But if you walk into a hotspot, it, it gets very fast or it might even start playing a siren, which is very, uh, makes you very uneasy. Um, and regions close to the reactor itself, or particularly an area which was known as the Red Forest, um, just because of the way that the winds were moving on the day of the um, meltdown, um, they were very badly impacted and all that dead vegetation um, was also extremely radioactive. So it's got what's called a leopard spotting pattern and also different types of vegetation tend to absorb it in different ways. So if you live in the zone, like a small number of people do, people who, who broke in initially illegally, but they're now um, sort of ignored by the, by the government, or sort of allowed to be there. Usually these are sort of um, quite elderly residents who simply couldn't adapt to living away from their um, ancestral homes. Um, so people another site, yeah. Another site you visit in the former Soviet Union is Harju Estonia. Why was that area abandoned? Was it a, more a matter of politics than as a result of any kind of disaster? Um, yeah, so this, this became quite abandoned uh, on a large scale. We're talking about agricultural land here. Um, and this was after the collapse of the Soviet Union um, when this collective farming system um, fell into I suppose, disrepair. It, it fell apart um, as capitalism was introduced. Um, and in Estonia, what often they did was try to trace the original owners of the land before it had been given to the state. Um, and many of them either couldn't be traced or they didn't want to be farmers. Um, and so very large tracts of land in Estonia and all across the former Soviet Union have been just sort of left in this weird stasis. Um, so they are regrowing forests on a, a really huge scale. Um, so all across them, I think it's very difficult to actually sort of measure this, but one study estimated something like 42 and a half million tons of carbon a year has been stored in this, or that's equivalent to something like 10% of Russia's emissions from fossil fuels. So technically it would have surpassed the terms of Kyoto Protocol just entirely through the abandonment of farmland. Um, so that's the scale we're talking about. It's huge amounts of uh, abandoned land all the way over the former Soviet Union. And I was really interested in, yeah, that sort of carbon sink potential of all of this land because, um, well, forests regrow and, and can do on huge scales in, in the space of a few decades. If you're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay. 
Welcome back to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Cal Flynn, who's written a book called Islands of Abandonment, Nature Rebounding in the Post-Human Landscape, published by Viking. Um, you uh, write about a number of places in the United States uh, that have become depopulated. Uh, Detroit, Michigan, even closer to uh, us here in New York, Patterson, New Jersey, Newark, and uh, Arthur Kill on Staten Island. Uh, but uh, let's talk about Detroit for a moment. People still live in Detroit, although the population has decreased dramatically since its heyday. Wasn't it once the fourth largest city in the United States? I think something like that, absolutely. So it's uh, the population has been sort of very steeply declining for, for a long period of time. And mostly because of the abandonment of the auto industry? Yes, that's right. That's definitely been the, the sort of proximal cause. And um, I think it sort of ended up causing a, a, a greater movement as well all at once. Because uh, as I sort of studied um, while I was looking at Detroit, the way that abandonment can almost become a, a force in itself, the, the more abandoned properties there are, the, the less likely other people are to stick around. So what's happened to those abandoned areas? Have they reverted to wild landscapes? Well, it's a slightly different picture in Detroit. So I went there to look at um, urban abandonment uh, and its impact on people. Um, so in Detroit, you have a, it's, a, it's a very patchy picture because um, some neighborhoods are definitely affected more than others. Um, but some neighborhoods, you do find really huge numbers of abandoned properties or um, I suppose the flip side of this, huge areas of, I guess, grassland. They call it urban prairie, which is where um, abandoned properties have now been demolished. So there's been a huge push to demolish as many of these properties as possible um, under this sort of logic that abandoned properties encourage other abandoned properties. And so what you find now is you might find whole streets when you drive down and you see only one or two buildings standing very alone on this urban prairie. So it is quite a different picture to, to some of the other more rural islands that I was looking at, but it, it does this uh, sense of abandonment of ruination or dereliction. It has this very powerful effect on people psychologically and in terms of their behavior as well. I don't think of Patterson, New Jersey as an area of abandonment. It is uh, the third most populous New Jersey city, but uh, wasn't it a major center of textile industry at one point called the Silk City? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. It was a Silk City and before that it had sort of several waves of different industries before that. And I'm not looking at Patterson as a whole, but rather uh, an industrial complex right at the heart of the city which has been abandoned for some time. So this is the old Colt gun mill and several um, linked buildings that were all involved in the Allied textile plant. Um, it's, it's a very large area and it is Near quite the a Passaic sort of River, powered by the Passaic River. Powered by the Passaic River. That's right. So they um, cut what's called raceways into the landscape, um, sort of canals that would power these mills. Um, so it was a, a very huge um, area of industry at one time. What role did Alexander Hamilton play in the story? <laughs> <laughs> so he was there um, at the beginning. Um, so be well before Patterson was Patterson, um, he stopped there um, 
following a battle um, during the Revolutionary War, and um, they admired his party admired the the very amazing falls there, um, which are still there today. Um, and then years later, while thinking about the need for American industry to develop after um, sort of America broke free and, and became its own country, um, that's where his mind went back to. And he thought about all that horsepower, you know, just there in the falls and in the river. And wouldn't it be great if America could harness this horsepower and, and use it to, to feed the industry to help this new country? And that's exactly what they did. And uh when and why did things change? Because did the textile mills all move overseas? Uh, yes, and um, well, just over the course of decades, you know, these these different industries rise and fall, um, and around the sort of early twentieth century, um, things were in decline, and you know, they've some of the mill buildings have found new uses or have been sort of reborn as as new identities but but these particular mills that i was looking at which were one of the the biggest areas um have not and they've been left in in this state of status and at the moment now well i suppose they are abandoned they're ruined um but i found when i went there with a local local urban explorer that there is a sort of population of a sort there you know a, a number of homeless people are, are making it their home um, and also sort of people go there to to hang out in this place that feels quite wild and off the map which is very close to the city center so um, there I guess um, I was interested in Detroit and also in Patterson New Jersey this this impact of ruination you know kind of on the human soul you know in some ways it repulses us and frightens us but also in some ways it thrills us and and certain people find themselves drawn to abandoned places and they want to experience them and they seek them out you know like my my urban explorer friend you know he's always looked for a place like this where he can feel free and he can you know explore and chat to people in a way that's not normally controlled or not under the strictures of normal society. So some people, I think, really do feel attracted to a place like that. And Patterson was also the home of a Negro League baseball team. Uh, now the, the stadium is abandoned. Is it just a rotting hulk? Yeah, that's right. Actually, it's quite an incredible space. You know, um, it's on a very large scale and there's cracks in the tarmac where the weeds are coming up and the old scoreboard is still there. It, for a while after it was the um, Negro League Baseball Stadium, it was used by local schools, but that's not been the case now for a while. There are some talks, I think, of, of regenerating it. But um, certainly when I was there, it was um, looking quite impressively um, ruined. Did the textile industry uh, create toxic waste from dyes and other chemicals? Is that also a problem there? Absolutely. In fact, um, the Passaic River was very, very, very badly um, polluted during that time. Um, not only from the silk mills, although they were um, very bad in terms of their dyes, but also by industries further downstream. So now the lower Passaic and part of Newark Bay is a super fun site, um, mainly due to um, industries in the early 20th century. So many of them became sort of um, much more um, chemically uh, complicated. So they were producing the constituent parts of Agent Orange in one site there. Mm -hmm. um, PCBs and um, dioxin are a terrible problems. So these are very, very sort of... Uh, um, troubling contaminants to have in the ecosystem and they are continue to exist they'll they'll never rot um so 
both in the Pacific, in the Passaic River and in Newark Bay are sort of really badly impacted by legacy contaminants, as they call them. Are we seeing something similar in Arthur Kill on Staten Island in Newark, New Jersey, where dioxin and other pesticides were manufactured? That's right. Um, well, the Arthur Kill is a little bit downstream, and so that's where the between um, New York Bay and, and, and the sea. Um, so I went down there to have a look at um, ghost ships or the ship graveyard on the, on the coast there, sort of as a, a visual symbol of the contaminants in the whole bay and in other industrial areas like this. Um, I was thinking, I suppose, of how the ecosystem in these places responds and adapts. So it's sort of inarguable that they've been very badly impacted by these poisons. But um, some species are sort of showing how um, evolution might uh, currently, but also in the future, help them survive. So a number of species, including the killifish or the mummichog and the um, tom cod live in, live in these areas. And they've been shown to have been adapting, you know, genetically to be able to survive in what is to them a, a, a sort of poisonous broth. And Too I think, polluted you know, for people to live there. Say again? Too polluted for people to live there. Well, people are very much uh, advised not to, you know, get any of this water in their mouths and certainly not to eat the crabs. Um, I think there's enough dioxin in one of the crabs that live in the water here to, to give a person cancer. So um, you've got to be really careful not to sort of eat fish as, and especially the crustaceans from, from that area of water. Uh, you write about the Salted Sea in California. How was it formed and, and what happened to it? Sure. The, the Salton Sea is a, a man-made lake um, that was created by accident um, when an irrigation canal um, burst its banks and flooded this um, dry um, playa in the desert. It's in the, the, the Sonoran Desert. And it has been sort of evaporating away ever since, sort of simmering away under the hot sun. Um, and it's becoming more and more saline as years go on. So for a period, um, I think in the 1950s was probably its heyday, um, there were lots of um, seaside attractions around there, a yacht club, um, some pretty seaside towns built on its edges, uh, including Bombay Beach, which is kind of a great place actually. Um, but the sea has been getting more saline, kind of more poisonous actually, and they've had repeated problems as the sea has been evaporating away with sort of outbreaks of things like botulism mm. and things among the migrant species of birds. So it's been really, a, you know, a kind of an environmental nightmare in recent decades. And there's lots of discussions locally about the, the toxic dust that's now blowing up from what was once the lake bed as it's evaporating away. So people are not living there anymore? Well, some people are. Mainly, I went to a place called Salton City, which was uh, they, they built these huge road systems, which you can see from above, um, sort of massive suburbs. Um, but there are very few houses that were actually built there, and, and many of those are abandoned. But some people are sort of hanging around. Um, and in Bombay Beach, a similar kind of picture of um, some of the streets were abandoned to flooding because they had a lot of problems in, in the desert of flash flooding. So the, the front row of houses um, has sort of dissolved away um, over the last couple of decades. But there are some people who live there. And it, it's an interesting community of people who are sort of hanging on there, maybe because they love it or because they have some kind of sentimental attachment to it or, or maybe because they can't afford to move anywhere else. 
Cal Flynn is my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Lawrence. She's written a book called Islands of Abandonment, Nature Rebounding in the Post-Human Landscape, published by Viking. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The island of Montserrat in the Caribbean was the site of a volcanic eruption in the 1990s. Did the entire island have to be evacuated and um, have, well, did it? Well, um, large areas of it were evacuated, including the capital town Plymouth, um, which uh, in the end was flooded by what's called pyroclastic flows, which are like superheated gas and ash, the kind of thing mm. that swept over Pompeii, that's what swept over Plymouth in Montserrat. So it's, it's quite a frightening place to visit, actually, the, the centre of the town, which was once a sort of pretty colonial buildings um they've been flooded to two or three stories in height so you can't see you know whether the clock tower was it's been completely reclaimed by ash um and the outer suburbs which are still evacuated now uh, in varying zones of of exclusion some of them are, are very strict and you need to have a, a police um um, what's the word escort with you um, and some of them you can visit during the day for example if you own a property and you want to sort of pop in and see where it is or pick up some paperwork but you have to be out there by nightfall so it depends on the current level of risk so at the moment it's been quite some number of years since there was an eruption but it's still not dormant so the volcanic observatory up on the hill is uh, constantly in contact with you if you go into the zone like I did so I went in with a local guide and a, and a police escort and then we had this radio with us and should anything go wrong we would have had 90 seconds to get out of the zone mm -hmm. so you keep your engine running and the car pointing to the exit at all times. Doesn't volcanic soil foster a different kind of plant life than regular soil? Isn't it rather enriched in some ways? Yes in, in some places I mean um it, it depends. I think it's, a, it's the best answer. Uh, some areas are enriched, but, but when it first comes out of the volcano, it's, it's very hot and sort of sterile. So um, it, it, it kills everything that it comes into the path of. And then around that, it tend, does tend to be marked by sort of areas of lushness. And um, Montserrat itself is this remarkable tropical island. It's full of sort of fruit trees and, and rainforest species. And I saw so many iguanas there. And, you know, it's, it's really a wonderful place, actually. I, I, I had a great time visiting there. But the, that sort of abandoned city or abandoned town, really, is the scale of it um, to the south is, is very sad to see. It's like sort of these dead-eyed houses and at the center there's just sort of gray expanse of where the where the town center once was. Perhaps the most unusual site in your book is the botanical garden at Amani, Tanzania. When was it created and why was it abandoned? That's right it was um, created during the the time of German East Africa under the German colonial powers they built um, a botanical garden because they wanted to find a, a crop species that they could use in um, Tanzania to make money from. Um, so they had different plantations um, of different species in the hope they might, I don't know, have timber or coffee or anything like that. Um, but a few years after that, um, Tanzania was taken over by the British during the First World War. And then um, later, several decades later, it was handed over to the Tanzanias when, when Tanzania Tanzania went independent. Um, after the Germans lost control of it, there was a lot less 
interest in the plantations themselves. And generally these species started sort of shinning up over the walls and escaping into the forest surrounding them. So I was there to sort of study this uh, effect of invasive species, especially on such a fragile environment as Amani, which is a cloud forest, which means it's at the top of very high mountains in Tanzania, sort of surrounded by very dry areas, but this is quite lush, um, quite temperate rainforest full of very rare endemic species. In New York City, we have some sites that were abandoned and have been turned into popular parks like the High Line and Governor's Island. And you write about the High Line when it was turned into a park, the the landscape designers planted, uh, didn't plant the, the species that had been growing uh, on the unused rail line, the indigenous species, but other plants inspired by the original self-seeded landscape. So did they undo the environmental good that abandonment had created? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting example, this, the Highline, actually, because um, I suppose when I came to visit, I still had it in mind that um, I didn't I didn't visit it for this book, but I, I was there several years ago and had had it in mind that it was still going to have some of that abandoned quality to it. Um, and so I was quite surprised that it was very much a sort of park and it is quite organized um, and had been replanted. And I suppose there are different ways that you can um, value a space like this. Um, one of them might be that it's a space for for wild species and wild plants which is what it was before a sort of self-seeded quite wild quite feral perhaps not necessarily so visually attractive and then the use that it has now which is a sort of green space for people very much quite busy and used um, so it's completely changed in nature um, I guess it depends what you value is the answer to that, which is now I can, I've had some really lovely times walking along the, the High Line in New York, but a little part of me is a little bit sad that it's no longer that sort of holdout for, for wild plants in the middle of the city. Although it has inspired a lot of imitations across the country, uh, other places that uh, had uh, experienced disasters and have been converted into parks. Uh, what would you like uh, readers to take away from this book? Do you think that the regeneration of these abandoned landscapes offers hope for the planet or are we getting uh, a mixed message here? <laughs> I think um, what I've taken away from these places is certainly a sense of hope. Um, and I think that's very necessary in environmental thinking today, which is quite often when I read um, um, stories or scientific studies about the climate, I, I come over all sort of nihilist and I feel like maybe nothing I can, I do can save this situation, you know? And what I took from these places was that all is not lost. It, you know, nature can regenerate on a very huge scale, surprisingly quickly, um, if we give it the chance. And I think that that's the most important thing. So we must learn to give nature the chance to do what it can do, whether that means giving over more land to naturally regenerate into forest, that might be one thing. If it, it might be, if you have a small garden, maybe to let it go a little bit wilder and not always to feel like you have to be on top of it and sort of gardening and tidying and controlling it. Um, I think it, I think I'm calling to all people to sort of look at their own relationship with the land around and try to give over a little bit of control um, and just see what nature can do. We have just a couple more minutes left, and I was wondering about an event tonight. Uh, do, don't you have an event uh, it, in conjunction with Community Bookstore in Brooklyn from 7.30 to 8.30 uh, in, in conversation with Jeff Vandermeer? 
That's right. I really can't wait. Um, I just absolutely love Jeff Vandermeer's books. And I think that if people enjoyed his, especially the Area X books, I think they'll find some of the spirit in my own book, even though it's a nonfiction one. So I just can't wait for this event tonight. So there's going to be is on Zoom. How can people join it? That's right. If you go to the community bookstore website, they're in Brooklyn and Park Slope. And um, there's a place to register on their website there. And I will look forward to it. Just one more thing. Do you think that the people who live in the areas that you've written about are pleased or would they worry about bringing attention to them uh, that that bring attention to them will bring tourists and, and disrupt <laughs> their lives? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. You know, in um, Bombay Beach and the Salton Sea, um, it's actually become sort of fashionable because uh, a bunch of LA artists sort of discovered this amazing, slightly Mad Maxi community, semi-abandoned on, on the side of this um, poisonous lake. And they've made a, a biennale. Every couple of years, they have this art festival there. Um, and actually, I thought there might be friction, you know, there's sort of lots of wealthy people bussing in for a few days, but it's brought money into the area. Um, people in Bombay Beach seem to be all for it. So I don't know, I think people might be interested but it varies well thank you so much for being on our show it's been a fascinating conversation fascinating book called islands of abandonment nature rebounding in the post-human landscape published by viking my great thanks to you cal flynn for being my guest thank you so much Leonard. it was such a pleasure to talk to you and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn for preparing this segment. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming uh, on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a, a minute or two to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique, in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Without your help, there's no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored, can stay on the air. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at large so we can keep on bringing you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else. Uh, consider becoming a member for $25 maybe or maybe more, uh, a sustaining member, a BAI buddy at $10 a month. Uh, again, the number to call is 212-209-2950, or you can go to give to WBAI.org on the web. And to everyone who has already stepped up to support us during this crisis that was caused by the terrible pandemic, thank you so much. And I hope you can join us for tomorrow's show when Walden Bellow, a professor of sociology at SUNY Binghamton and a former member of the Philippine House of Representatives, will discuss an article, a fascinating article, a recent article uh, that he, uh, he wrote for Foreign Policy and Focus called Fascism's Global Spread is as Real as the Pandemics. We'll see you then. Okay.